Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Columbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. And we're so glad you're with us on this Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We're also happy to report that we're sponsored by Figs. Head to wherefigs.com and use our code martini at checkout. And we're also very happy to report that Jim is back today. Jim's had a pretty good last few days. He got to go on vacation. The Jets won. And Peter King's not running for re-election. So, uh, Jim, uh, you pretty much hit the trifecta there. Yeah. Uh, it's, it says it's the kind of year where, like, I, the Jets beat the Giants, and I don't even feel like uh, trash-talking to the various Giant fans I know because I know both teams are so terrible. It's like, woo, we are slightly less awful than you are. <laughs> um, and as for uh, Peter King, I wish him a happy retirement. This is a guy who's been putting his money into an IRA for a really long time. <laughs> Jim, I figured oh, out. not that IRA. <laughs> Uh, Jim, I have a, I have the solution to the Jets' woes. Do you know, want to know what it is? Disband the franchise? Because, that, yeah, that, that would end it. No, see, uh, it, it's going to take a little work, but hear me out here. Because uh, both times that the Jets won, it was the weekend of a federal holiday. Columbus Day and then Veterans Day. So what you need to do is move the start of the season back to Labor Day weekend. And then you need to win Labor Day weekend, Columbus Day weekend, Veterans Day weekend, Thanksgiving weekend. Christmas weekend, New Year's weekend, and then find some way to add four federal holidays in the fall. I like that. I, like, you know, look, I bet you a lot of workers would sign on to that proposal. So, Who needs all that American uh, economic productivity? Anyway, on to our martinis. We've got uh, Good, Bad, and Crazy. Thanks to Chad Benson and Rob Long, by the way, for filling in for Jim. But let's get to our good martini, Jim. And so we are now... What, a little more than two and a half months away from people actually voting, which is the Iowa caucuses and New Hampshire primary. Uh, in February, I think uh, Nevada might be in there as well and maybe South Carolina. So February is going to be uh, very interesting for the Democrats in the field. Uh, and as we get closer and closer, some folks are deciding that it's just not going to work. So they're getting out. See folks like Jay Inslee or uh, Kirsten Gillibrand or more recently Beta O'Rourke. Then you've got other people who aren't getting out, but they're kind of scaling back and they're just complaining. And they're whining and they're making excuses for why they're not doing better, including someone like Kamala Harris, who, of course, branded herself top tier back in the summer. Now she's disbanded her efforts in New Hampshire and she's pretty much flailing everywhere, including Iowa, where she's putting all of her eggs into the basket. So speaking to Axios on HBO, Kamala Harris has finally put her finger on why she's not doing better in this primary season. I have also started to... um perhaps be more candid, talking about what I describe and what I believe to be the elephant in the room about my campaign. What is that? Electability. What do you mean? Electability. You know, essentially, is America ready for a woman and a woman of color to be president of the United States? America was ready for a black man to be president of the United States. And this conversation happened for him. There is a lack of ability or a a difficulty in imagining that someone who we have never seen can do a job that has been done, you know, 45 times by someone who is not that person. Jim, the only reason America's not ready for a Greek president who spends a lot of time working in radio and podcasting is because it's never happened before, and that's just a tragedy. But she's not alone. Amy Klobuchar on State of the Union with Jake Tapper over the weekend on CNN explaining why Pete Buttigieg is doing well in the early states, and she's not doing nearly as well. Of the women... On the stage, I'm focusing here on my fellow women senators, Senator Harris, Senator Warren, and myself. Do I think that we would be standing on that stage 
if we had the experience that he had? No, I don't. Maybe we're held to a different standard. So, Jim, it's obviously fun to watch the food fighting get more intense as we get closer and closer to the votes actually happening. But it's even better to watch Democrats who aren't doing well blaming Democratic primary votes for being racist and misogynist. You know, Greg, I was, it's fascinating because I think a lot of Democratic progressives have certain default arguments that they revert to either when they're cornered or when they're in a tough spot or when stronger arguments aren't ready. You know, play the race card, play the gender cards. And it's a little bit like when you see Democrats complaining about the situation in California. There are no Republicans in California. I exaggerate slightly. But there are no, there are no statewide uh, Republicans in California. There are no uh, Republicans or minorities, state, state assembly. Uh, or when you see Democrats complaining about the conditions of, of life in New York City. These are not Republican-dominated places. In fact, there really aren't that many Republicans. They are a token representative in most of these places. I remind everyone, right now, Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar and, and Buttigieg and all of these people are competing for the support of Democrats. Yes, in New Hampshire, uh, you know, independents can vote and, and here and there. But by and large, they are competing for the vote of Democratic primary voters who are either registered Democrats or Democrat-leaning independents. When they say it's because of racism, when they say it's because of sexism, by the way, it's a racist party that nominated Barack Obama twice, and it's a sexist <laughs> party that nominated Hillary Clinton last time around, that, that basically they are insulting their own voters. They are saying the base of their party is so locked into these intolerant and unaccepting and, and hateful worldviews that they cannot accept someone like that. Now, could that be true? You know, for, for the sheer joy of dunking on them, I guess we could concur. But all in all, it probably has something more to do with the fact that uh, Kamala Harris is not that good a candidate. It probably has something to do with the fact that, you know, most of the time up until that last debate, Amy Klobuchar has been duller than dishwasher, uh, dishwater. Uh, dishwashers too. Dishwashers are not particularly exciting either. Um, but then the other thing is, is that Greg, Michael Dukakis was a bad candidate. And that is what has held back the Greek American uh, uh, presidential candidate of our time. Um, you know, this, this is all blame shifting. This is all sour grapes. This is all, if you don't like me, it's your fault, primary voters. You're stupid because you can't see how great I, it's the, you know, I'm not getting dumped by you. I'm, I'm dumping you. It is ugly, but I think it also reflects something deep at the heart of democratic, uh, modern progressives, modern liberals, which is that if something doesn't turn out the way they wanted, it must have some sort of sinister, institutionally psychological motive there. It must reflect racism. It must reflect sexism. It couldn't possibly be their own fault. It couldn't possibly be their own individual responsibility for how they've done in this campaign. No, no, no. It's got to be these giant impersonal forces that are holding their back. And it's, you know, this... Ultimately, it's just kind of this reveling in victimhood, uh, which is a way of putting a positive spin on an otherwise deeply disappointing presidential campaign. Well, just taking cues from Hillary, I guess, because she's completely unable to accept the fact that she wasn't the choice of, um, well, people in the right states anyway in 2016. So uh, as long as uh, the victimhood tour goes on, might as well have some opening acts, I guess. Yeah, there you go. And again, I, I, the other thing is, you know, I, I imagine like, yeah, I guess what's kind of fascinating is, look, most people had not heard much of anything about Amy Klobuchar before this campaign. Americans may have known a little bit about Kamala Harris. Maybe they remember from the, the Kavanaugh hearing. Um, but look, she was not somebody who was really well-known coast to coast. Running for president is hard. Um, considering the number of folks on the right side of the aisle who have run and failed completely, America, I will never forgive you for not electing Bobby Jindal. 
<laughs> you know, you, you really shouldn't. If you run for president, you lose. Look, almost everybody's going to lose. If you run for president and you flop, hey, you know what? Phil Graham flopped and conservatives love them. Right. There are a whole bunch of people. Mo Dahl was one of the funniest guys who ever run for president. Bill Bradley, very accomplished. You know, there are a lot of people who run for president and just flop. And, you know, sometimes it's circumstances. Sometimes it's what worked for you at the state level. Uh, senators very often have a very tough time translating to you, know, that you don't have the executive experience. People can't picture you as the, the person making the decision. Uh, you've taken a whole bunch of votes in your career that have you know irked people. Look, you know, this stuff is hard. Most people who run for president do not see themselves clearly. If you saw yourself clearly, you probably wouldn't be running because you'd recognize all the flaws you have as a human being and all the ways you would probably not make a good president. So uh, this is a matter of their delusions catching up to them. Oh, that's amazing. And Iowa's going to be very telling because, as I mentioned, uh, Harris is putting all, all of her uh, efforts into Iowa now. And right now she's... Uh, not even above the margin of error in most of the polls. And uh, you've got Klobuchar losing quite badly to uh, at least four people, if not more. And uh, if you border the other state, like she does, Minnesota and Iowa, uh, you pretty much have to go the way of Tim Pawlenty and Michelle Bachman and some of these other folks who have... Uh, Walter Mondale. <laughs> Walter Mondale. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, it's time to get out if you don't uh, at least look somewhat competitive there, right? I mean, like for most of these people, if you're not going to do well in Iowa, where are you going to do well? And, you know, there, there are some campaigns, by the way, who try to do Rudy Giuliani, perhaps most famously, you know, for a New York mayor, you think, oh, you know, New Hampshire. And then his numbers started sinking in New Hampshire. And it was like, well, we're not going to compete in uh, Iowa. We're not really going to try that much in New Hampshire. Uh, South Carolina is not going to be our home state, even though there are a decent number of transplanted northerners there. And Nevada wasn't right. So the whole, well, we're putting all our chips on Florida. Well, right. by that point, after you've lost you know, all those primaries, you people forget you exist. <laughs> and it did not work out for that. Whether, look, we, we can join the Julian Castro caucus. And, and many of us have been saying for a long time, these early states are not, the, you know, are not people representative. It should rotate. They're, you know, but this is the system we have. Nobody didn't sneak up on anybody. And if you can't compete well in these early states, you're, you're probably toast. Well, some of these Democrats need some serious help. Sometimes it's the, the college crowd. Sometimes it's presidential candidates and other political candidates who just can't accept the fact that people don't want them to be the next president or whatever office they're running for. But uh, if you do need to see a medical professional, you would probably want to see one that uh, looks very confident and competent. And one of the best ways to help them feel confident and feel like they're at their very best is to be wearing some of the most uh, comfortable gear. Because if there's anything we can agree on, it's that the people that do all that they do to keep us healthy and well, nurses, doctors, dentists, and everybody else who works in healthcare. They're amazing people. Uh, if you ever take a kid to the pediatrician, you know how much work they do. Um, we have all been helped by medical professionals. What these amazing people do every day is more than a job, and what they wear is more than a uniform. So shouldn't they wear scrubs that help them feel good and perform at their best? For years, nurses, doctors, dentists, and other awesome medical professionals were forced to wear scratchy, ill-fitting scrubs. And Greg, I don't know about you, but if somebody's going to be holding my spleen in their hand, I'd really like them to feel very comfortable at that moment. I don't want them pausing to scratch because the tag is nagging at them or something like that. Not only were they ugly and uncomfortable, they were not designed with innovative technical properties to protect and hold those life-saving tools. I don't want them looking for the stethoscope. I don't want them looking for the, the utterly cold uh, uh, thermometer they inevitably use on, on cold days. But there's more about figs. Every time you shop at figs, they give scrubs to healthcare providers in need around the world through their Threads for Threads initiative. To date, figs has donated hundreds of thousands of sets, 
in more than 35 countries. Figs has great stuff. I had the chance to order some things through Figs, and I got some very uh, comfortable socks, as well as a very uh, nice activewear jacket. And this thing is amazing because it's very light, and so it's great on those breezy days where it's 60 or 70 or maybe even a little bit cooler than that. You really don't need a jacket when it's in the 70s. But uh, even on colder days, this thing really does keep you warm. So when uh, your favorite medical professional is going between room to room and building to building and there's temperature fluctuations, uh, this, uh, this particular jacket, I think, could be a very good thing for them. So whether you are in the healthcare industry or you just have a great doctor, great dentist, great nurse that you want to say thank you to, uh, FIGS is the way to express that thanks. And FIGS is going to make that very easy by providing you with 15% off your first purchase by using our code MARTINI. So get ready to love your scrubs. Head to wearfigs, W-E-A-R-F-I-G-S dot com and enter our code MARTINI at checkout. All right, Jim, we've got about 24 more hours until the complete circus begins up on Capitol Hill with the public impeachment hearings. Uh, Adam Schiff uh, has uh, done his work. Is he the one in charge of these or is this Nadler now? I'm, I'm totally losing track. But uh, nonetheless, we're going to have a lot of these people who went in behind closed doors for their depositions speak in open session. Um, and uh, we kind of know what the lineup is starting to look like based on the depositions that have been released. But it's not just a matter of getting the facts out there for Democrats. According to uh, Yamish Alcindor of PBS, she was speaking with Andrea Mitchell on MSNBC. The Democrats aren't just looking for evidence. They want to make an emotional connection, something that didn't happen during the Mueller hearings. I've been talking to Democratic aides all weekend. They tell me that they learned a lot of lessons from the from the hearing of Robert Mueller. They say that hearing didn't go well because a, a, an hour and a half in, there were a lot of disruptions. People weren't really emotionally attached to Robert Mueller. Now they're saying that they want to bookend this with blockbuster witnesses. So they have William Taylor going because they think he can tell the, the entire story by himself. But also they want Marie Ivanovich to be there because I'm told she cried during her deposition. So she's really someone there to be emotional so that people can feel sympathetic and see that they were actual victims in the U.S. government to President Trump's policies and to President Trump trying to get Ukraine to investigate Biden's, the Bidens and the Democrats. Oh, if we can just get her to cry, Jim, this is going to be so sweet. I mean, come on. What is <laughs> obviously you're going to try to make a compelling case. And if this is like a courtroom, you would probably want some emotion to sway the jury or, or what have you. But uh, I'm having a hard time remembering that uh, lack of emotion was the problem with the Mueller hearing. I think it was that he wasn't really sure what happened during the investigation and they ultimately didn't recommend any charges. Yeah, that, that would seem to be a glaring. <laughs> yeah. If he had just been more passionate and emphatic when he said he didn't find sufficient evidence to prove charges of collusion. Um, Greg, I think the easiest job in politics must be image consultant. Because that means you get paid to describe how things look. I suppose you could say, well, Jim, isn't that kind of what movie critics do or art critics do or something like that? But really, in the end, your job is to look at stuff and basically say how it makes you feel. You don't really need to know anything. You, you don't necessarily need to be able to evaluate whether what's being said is true or not. Um, you don't need to know any kind of historical context. You don't need to know background. You don't need to know, necessarily need to know the law. All you need to do is say, wow, that was a good performance. Or, oh, that wasn't a good performance. By the way, if any of this reminds you of how Jim assesses the debates, um, forget that. <laughs> just, just erase it. Forget I ever said this. Um, but no, like this is, you know, being able to say, oh, if they just cry more, this will be much, oh, come on. I suppose there may be a certain amount of truth, but honestly, I don't think if Mueller had, you know, you know, uh, done the uh, Al Pacino, you know, I'm out of order. You're out of order. This whole court is out of order. 
or scent of a woman or, or you know, you can't handle the truth from, you know. Look, it was not an issue of insufficient drama. Either the facts are there or they're not. Either the law is there or it isn't. There's an old saying, if you don't have the facts, the law on your side, pound the table. I, we've seen plenty of pounding the table from lots of Democrats. Eric Swalwell is really good at pounding the table. He's really good at sounding very emphatic when he you know, wants to make a point. That we've seen a lot of times where he pauses for applause and all you hear are crickets. <laughs> Suggests maybe what you say is every bit as important as how you say it and maybe even more important. Again, this is not a Broadway show we're, not, we're putting on. This is why people look at this cynically. And if you really do believe that this is a giant constitutional crisis, the president has abused his power, that he has used the author- abused the authority of the presidency to promote his own personal interests and partisan interests, then act like it. Stop acting like you're trying to put together a big campaign commercial, which at this point is what Democrats sound like they're doing. So how long is this going to go? A few weeks? If it's Mitch McConnell... I mean, they, they clearly want to get this done as quickly as possible. I don't think they can make Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving you know, even though Thanksgiving is late, in my head, it's always like, oh, it's next week. It's not next week. Public service announcement, everyone. It feels like it's next week. Today is the 12th. Thanksgiving is on the 28th. It's very late this year. But, you know, once you get into that, you start getting into the holidays. Um, and my guess is whatever happens, it will probably go run into January, probably early January, let's say. And my guess is... Greg, is that uh, Mitch McConnell will probably want it to start as quickly as possible after the House finishes, but it will extend well through the primaries. Um, <laughs> and if I'm Mitch McConnell, I expect this will go all the way through Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Iowa. So uh, have a nice month, Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar, and Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. And meanwhile, we can, you know, we can barely hear ourselves over the sound of Joe Biden laughing. Yeah, Joe's going to have some elbow room if that's the case. Yeah, and by the way, if he does happen to reschedule it, uh, you know, and try to, you know, it's possible that, you know, the Democrats will then say, please give us some sort of leniency or something. Give us half days or something like that. You know, it could drag it out even longer. But, you know, theoretically, then they'd be able to do afternoon and evening events in those key primary states. But you know what Biden would say to that, Greg? Malarkey! Malarkey! Speaking of the Democratic primary season, let's move to our crazy martini now. And On Friday, uh, Rob Long and I talked about the fact that uh, Michael Bloomberg seems to have reconsidered and is getting in the race, filing his papers in Alabama to meet that deadline, because you know he'll be a very strong candidate in Alabama. Uh, Jim, uh, he's not the only one, apparently, who is looking at getting in at the last second. This goes back to our uh, crazy martini from a while back, or maybe it's even a good martini, that uh, so many Democratic donors were looking at this gigantic field of candidates and saying, yeah, I don't think any of these people have what it takes to actually become the next president. So they're still talking about getting other people in the race. So Bloomberg was one of them. He now appears to be uh, essentially in. I don't know if he's officially in, but uh, we've got a couple others now, too. Uh, according to the New York Post, Eric Holder, the former attorney general and self-proclaimed wingman to President Barack Obama, may be on the brink of diving into the Democrats' nomination fight. Uh, The hint came from Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson, who tweeted that Holder has been consulting strategists about launching a campaign. Not to be outdone, former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick seriously weighing whether he could make a credible last-minute entry into the field. Quote, he's taking and making calls, one of the Democrats familiar with Patrick's thinking said. But both Democrats said Patrick is well aware of the uphill nature of such a late candidacy. And, of course, Jim, there's never an end to the Hillary Clinton speculation. So (laughs) four different names floating around here in mid-November about finally joining this race that some people got in 10 months ago. So what do you make of this, uh, this scramble to get more names in here? 
Yeah, well, if you're wondering about the timing of it, we are starting to get to the filing deadlines of certain states like Alabama. Could you manage to become the nominee without having your name on the ballot in one or two states? Sure. But after that, it starts getting a lot more complicated. Oh, by the way, uh, I think it was Sarah Flores, who used to work for the Ted Cruz campaign, then became a spokeswoman for DOJ. Now is a uh, analyst for CNN who pointed out that if you're if you're starting now and you want to get your name on the ballot in all, let's say, you know, 49 states or 48 states, you probably need either seven million in cash to go out and hire the people to get your name on the petitions, to put your name on the ballot in all the places it needs to be. Um, or you need to be a, a, you know, pretty much a national name ID. Bloomberg certainly can afford it and he probably has it. I think that what motivated the Bloomberg action late last week was that uh, that that filing deadline. Holder probably has it. I don't think Deval Patrick has it. Um, and Hillary, of course, does. But again, the question is how much you know, Hillary exhaustion would be out there. Look, this is all the establishment saying we don't have faith in Joe Biden. And whether or not you think that's fair, I think you can look at his debate performances and say they were kind of shaky. The fundraising numbers were not great. And look, Biden looks like an old man. If you, know, you could say, oh, and he's the centrist choice. Look, number two and number three are, you know, the uh, 78-year-old going on 79 who just had a heart attack, who's the running on, on, on you know, unrefined Bolshevism. And um, the other one is Elizabeth Warren, who is the warmth and charm of Hillary Clinton, but with a, you know, uh, a sense that she kind of scammed her way for an affirmative action advantage. Those are very vulnerable people to match up. And that New York Times poll from we discussed early last week freaked Democrats out, and it should freak them out. Because in the end, all of this is basically saying we've learned very little from our experience in 2016. We thought that was an unlo- unlosable campaign and we lost it. We're every bit as confident about 2020 and we don't really want to have to adjust too much. If they were serious about adjusting, they would have nominated somebody like Tim Ryan, who was, to use one of my favorite phrases, not exactly a whirling dervish of raw political charisma. But if you wanted to win back the voters who shifted from Obama to Trump over from 2012 to 2016, Tim Ryan's the kind of guy you would do. Maybe you'd do a uh, um, Sherrod Brown type, maybe uh, 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 the Montana governor. There are a couple other folks who have at least a little more appeal to that theoretical blue collar, working class, white, you know, centrist kind of voter. Out of these names that have been mentioned, the one I think is most intriguing is Deval Patrick. If you're the Democrats, you look at what went wrong in 2016, African-American turnout was not what it was for Obama. Now, it's not to say that every African-American is automatically going to turn out if there's an African-American Democratic nominee, but it's probably more likely they're more likely to come out a little bit more. They feel like they're a little more invested in this, that uh, you have a slightly better turnout in places like Cleveland or Miami Gardens in Florida or in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin or, or in Philadelphia. These are a bunch of places where if you're a Democrat, you want African-American turnout to be high and a bunch of those states were closed. So yeah, it makes sense. And for whatever reason, Kamala Harris is not having it done, as we discussed in that first uh, Martini. Cory Booker, just not getting it done. Uh, could Holder jump in? Yeah, I guess. I, you know, I, I feel like he's got his own separate baggage he'd have to deal with. But, you know, Patrick was the guy early on before he decided he wasn't running, that he was, you know, he's looked serious. Again, I don't know if Patrick has the resources and certainly only has the name recognition to get on the ballot everywhere he needs to get, to get fast. And if he does, he's going to have to jump in really fast. Well, it'd be really interesting if any one of these folks jumps in and you start seeing people shifting from Biden to him. But right now, if you had to, you know, if, if you know, really push came to shove, I think Joe Biden is still the guy who is most likely to be the Democratic nominee when uh, summer of 2020 rolls around. Fascinating to watch. Fascinating to watch. If Holder gets in, then we got a big tussle over the Obama legacy with Castro yeah. and Biden. Oh, it's almost be, almost be worth it just for the Biden-Holder fights. <laughs> 
And, uh, of course, if Deval Patrick gets in, then, uh, you know, he uh, worked for a company that gave cancer to people. You remember this, right? Uh, <laughs> Bain Capital. Bain yes. Capital, yes. Or is that only evil if a Republican worked there? I, I get confused sometimes. I, I, I think Deval Patrick voted against the Give Workers Cancer uh, <laughs> initiative that they had at Bain. But he may have been outvoted. So there We'll find out. Like you said, they've got to decide soon if they're going to do it. So, Jim, welcome back. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Karimis, Radio America. Thank you so much for being with us today. Don't forget to get figs. Head to wearfigs, W-E-A-R-F-I-G-S dot com. Use our promo code MARTINI for yourself if you're in the medical profession or it's a fantastic gift for that doctor, dentist, or nurse that makes such a big difference in your life. And also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a great review, if you don't mind, over at iTunes. And join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.